Heavenly Father, we come before you this evening and we are so grateful for the mercies that you bestow upon us, um, even mercies which we're unaware of. Um, you bless us richly and constantly and we thank you, Lord, for the great privilege of being able to be here tonight together, um, your people um, surrounding your word. And we ask that your spirit would come amongst us and enliven our minds and our wills and elevate our affections to love you more. Lord, we give you Dr. Thomas tonight and ask you that you would heal him and make him feel better and give him rest um, and prepare him for this Sunday. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, as, as Neil said, yes, I got a, a few hours notice as I was on my way to a late lunch at Chick-fil-A and I went through the drive through far too fast and I digest my food far too fast as well. Um, You've got your notes tonight, and um, we're just going to see what we can do with them. Um, I suppose, as any teacher knows, and as I'm starting to find out, um, Derek's thoughts are deeply connected with, with this, and it's kind of hard for me to jump in to try and get into his mind and understand what's going on. So I'll probably try and go from his to my notes, and my notes make far less sense. Um, but I do want to start off and talk about uh, where we are um, as a culture and why it is that we need this doctrine of glorification, why it has to be so vitally important to us. Um, I want to begin by saying that we live in a culture of death. Uh, nihilism, the belief that there are no objective values, that uh, there's nothing right, nothing wrong, anything goes, is rampant. We're seeing that um, as marriage is being redefined, whatever's good for you is good for me. Um, you shouldn't press things. As R.C. Sproul says, the pagan has to say in the final analysis that there is no such thing as evil and there's no such thing as good, just personal preferences, what's good for you, what's good for me. That is in fact what pagan relativists do say until you steal their wallet. Then they boldly declare, that's not right, that's wrong. So all of a sudden, you try to steal a pagan's wallet or anyone's wallet, they're going to say that's wrong. And we see that um, nihilism, um, atheism, ultimately runs up against morals. They are out there and they do exist. And we see this even on a political or a global stage. Um, Marxism and communism are truly hopeless ideologies. Um, Ambassador George Kennan once claimed that communism was doomed because it had no sufficient answer to the problem of death. And this is where it kind of dovetails in with why glorification is so important. Uh, the ambassador, George Kennan, said this, As an adequate and enduring personal philosophy, Marxism has many deficiencies, but the greatest of them is that it has, in contrast to Christianity, no answer to the phenomenon of death. This is why there is nothing more pathetic than a Marxist funeral. For to the Marxist, this formality celebrates nothing more than an inexplicable, unpreventable, and profoundly discouraging event in the human experience. Unable to give meaning to death, Marxism is unable to give meaning to life. I'll read that again because it's, it's so poignant. Unable to give meaning to death, Marxism is unable to give meaning to life. Now, this helplessness is the guarantee of its impermanence and ultimate failure of the personal philosophy and political ideology. We live in a culture in which uh, there are no answers to why we die, why we suffer. And what the doctrine of glorification offers us is a hope, a true hope. Uh, just a few more examples. Uh, the great 
Scottish philosopher was lamenting the, the advancement of progress. It was moving too fast. And he realized, we don't know what we're doing. We've opened Pandora's box and we don't know what's going to happen. Things are just rapidly moving and we don't know what to do with it. He says, there is in truth a terror in the world and the arts have heard it as they always do. Under the hum of the miraculous machines and the ceaseless publications of the brilliant physicists, a silence waits and listens and is heard. It is the silence of apprehension. We do not trust our time. And the reason we do not trust our time is because it is we who have made the time and we do, and we do not trust ourselves. We have played the hero's part, mastered the monsters, accomplished the labors, become gods. And we do not trust ourselves as gods. We know what we are. In the old days when the gods were someone else, the knowledge of what we are did not frighten us. But now that we are gods ourselves, we bear the knowledge for ourselves. Like that old Greek hero who learned when all the labors had been accomplished that it was he himself who had killed his son. The idea that progress is advancing so fast and we're just getting run over by it. We don't know how to control it. In fact, it's controlling us. And you've always got to appeal to Frederick Nietzsche for that you know, winning quote when it comes to where we are. He says, if there is a God, how can I bear not to be that God? If there is a God, how can I not bear to be that God? This is where we live, and we don't need modern technology to tell us that we don't want a God. In fact, we want God. We want ourselves to be that God. If we place ourselves at the center of the universe, which we will eventually do sooner or later, then we will also place ourselves at the end of existence. If we make ourselves gods, as Nietzsche prophesied in many ways, we're going to be the ones that have to glorify ourselves as well. We live to glorify ourselves today, and we live to see ourselves glorified at the end of each one of our stories. If Christ is not God and King, if Christ is not Lord, we become that Lord. And if we become that Lord, we bear the responsibility of having to glorify ourselves. And that's such a miserable narrative to kind of trace out. So what is glorification? What is its definition? Because I want to say that in answer to modernity, to the problem of culture, to the problem of nihilism, and even to atheism, the doctrine of glorification has so much practical purchase. Um, if you were here for the lecture I gave, which was actually organized and thought through um, about effectual calling, I used a lot of John Murray, um, and I've went to the good doctor again for this. John Murray says that the doctrine of glorification is the final, or glorification is the final phase of the application of redemption. It is that which brings to completion the process which begins in effectual calling. And if you remember, effectual calling was the Heavenly Father's call into time and space to woo each one of us to himself. The Father lovingly calls each one of us to himself. And glorification, as we will see, hopefully, is what happens whenever the Father brings us to himself and we meet him face to face. The purpose of effectual calling was we were called by the Father to become sons and daughters of God. 
Well, if that's the purpose of effectual calling, the purpose of glorification, I want to say, is rooted in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. We shall meet God, and we shall see him face to face in Jesus Christ. So if God calls us, if God the Father calls us, glorification tells us that Jesus leads us as sons and daughters into glory, into the presence of God. It's a beautiful story from effectual calling right to glorification. Well, and I know some of you guys are maybe looking at Dr. Thomas's notes. Um, we'll, we'll try and jump in here at some point. Um, there is a timeline of sorts, but as Martin Luther tells us, and we see this throughout um, Christianity, especially in um, Christianity in the 20th century, as we try to work out the end times, we come up with some crazy notions of what that's going to look like. Um, we go to the Old Testament and to Daniel, and we manage to read AH-64 Apache helicopters, and we do stuff with the locusts that sound like tanks, um, and it's just really bizarre. But as Martin Luther tells us, as little children in their womb know about their birth, so little do we know about life everlasting. So it's very careful that we um, guard against speculating here. and We try to root our understanding in scripture. Um, the Shorter Catechism tells us this, that at death the souls of believers are made perfect in holiness and so immediately pass into glory. The souls of believers at their death immediately pass into glory and their bodies being still united to Christ do rest in their graves till the resurrection. So here we have this understanding in which it's distilling scripture but it's telling us that at death our souls are with God but our bodies are still in the grave. This is not yet full glorification. Glorification involves much more. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So that's kind of taking, or the shorter catechism is is basing a lot of what it says from 2 Corinthians, that once we die, we are immediately in God's presence. But our bodies aren't there yet. It's only once our bodies and our souls are reunited that um, we are glorified. First Corinthians, and I'll appeal to this, and Dr. Thomas has a lot of quotes in here as well from this magnificent chapter, the last chapter, of first, or the 15th chapter of First Corinthians, this wonderful hymn just glorying in the resurrection. And one of the verses says this, and it kind of pinpoints what glorification looks like. Only when the perishable, our bodies, puts on the imperishable perishable, and we shall be changed, do we get to be glorified. So it's only when our bodies and our spirits are brought together, that's when glorification is fully consummated. And Paul, again, in Romans 8, um, verse 23, says this, And not only the creation... But we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. See that familial language again? We're, we're, we're children of God. As we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's important to see what Paul is doing here. He is connecting the end time, glorification, and he mentions creation and our bodies. 
And that's important because we tend to think that we go to heaven, it's just our souls. It's as though, for for those of you who are Trekkies, that Jesus beams us out of here. And um, the bodies stay in the grave that's done and dusted. It's just we're these kind of ghostly figures that willow along in heaven. Well, it's not. It's our bodies go as well. And uh, we'll look at how we see that example in Jesus. John Murray once again says this, Glorification is the complete redemption of the whole person, the whole person, when in the integrity of body and spirit, the people of God will be conformed to the image. And notice how he qualifies the image of Christ, the image of the risen, exalted, and glorified Redeemer. Do you remember when Jesus visits the disciples on the Emmaus Road? He's glorified. He eats with them. And I want to believe that we can eat in heaven. I mean, eating is a great thing. Um, I want to believe that we get to eat in heaven. The glorified Jesus, um, he was eating fish, but he also had scars in his hands. Um, This is important, and I kind of want to trace what that looks like um, a little bit further. I also want to say, though, that because glorification involves what was created by God and our human bodies... We haven't really done a great job as Christians understanding what that means. Um, We have a really bad doctrine of creation, in fact. Uh, So much so that we get really squeamish about the body. Um, I want to say that's one of the reasons why, as as a church, we've struggled with what to do with abortion and what to do with uh, the unborn. Because we, we view ourselves ultimately as spiritual beings. But as we see in Romans 8, there's just so much richness in Romans 8. It's not only believers that are to be delivered from the bondage of sin, but creation too. Paul talks about how creation groans and it travails. And it's at the end of time that God will redeem it as well. Well, what does that even look like? We tend to think that at the end of time... Yes, Jesus beams us out of here and the earth will be done away with. But that indirectly points to the idea that, well, did God make a, st- make a mistake with redemption, with creation? Did God make a mistake creating the world? And I want to say, no, he, obviously he didn't. And there, there's something still left for this world. And I'm glad about that. I mean, growing up, I heard some pretty awful sermons about what heaven will look like Um, and it always involved earth being done away with and it just seemed weird Um, and I'll I'll get to that I'll get to that I told you this would be a bit of meandering Um, what I want to say is that this life um, is more than just a read-through this is not just a dress rehearsal we will have creation still part of glory and that's important It's important because, pastorally, it's important because the things that we go through aren't done away with. They aren't undermined. Um, One of the things that I wrote down here, I actually wrote down rabbit trail, and as Dr. Davis has pointed out, it's only a rabbit trail if you know it's a rabbit trail. And I do know that this is a rabbit trail. Um, And I ask this question, and I, I think I might have an answer. It might not be right, but I ask... Will we bear the scars of this life in our glorified bodies? Will we bear those scars? I follow that up by asking, will we even retain the memory of the things that we've suffered and endured when we get to glory? I think so. And I may be wrong in this, and I'm, I'm not wagering anything on it, but, you know, we see Jesus, um, and he will bear the scars. And I think... 
with those things that we do endure and experience, I think we will still have memories of them, a recollection of them, but they will be redeemed, purified, sanctified, glorified, so that they don't weigh us down. So for those of us that, or for, that have endured terrible hardships, even abuse, will they be done away with? I don't think so, but I do think they'll be glorified and redeemed. Because that's what constitutes who we are and the Lord is using his providence to make us the person we are today. If we say that we don't have any recollection and, and memory of these things, um, we dismiss God's use of them in our lives. And I think as scripture points out in many places, First Peter um, in particular, that these become our sufferings, our experiences become instruments by which he makes us more like his son Jesus. And to say that we won't remember those things is to kind of, I'm, again, I'm thinking off the top of my head here, is to kind of dismiss them as unimportant. Well, they're incredibly important, and I think we will have a, remember of, or a reminder, a memory of them in glory, but they won't weigh us down. They won't be that nightmarish um, experience that we may endure today. Like I said, that, that's a rabbit trail. Um, I want to say that creation is important, that God's original design and the theater of his glory, creation, matters to him. We live as Gnostics. Matter is bad, spirit is good. So when we come to church, we want our theological download, and we don't think about how we live the rest of the week. If we can just get our theological and biblical download, and just as we become, as one theologian says, bobblehead Christians, we've got these huge heads, and we just walk around with these kind of very thin and emaciated bodies. And if you've seen these bobbleheads and you're in cars, that's what we're like. We get all the theology and all the Bible information, but it doesn't transmit into the way that we live. Well, our theology has to descend into our hearts. It has to extend into our hands and reach out and embrace people and serve. Theology has to turn into practice. And I think one of the reasons why it doesn't is because we view matter not in a biblical way, but in a Gnostic way. And the Gnostics believe matter bad, spirit good. And if we can just tame our, bo- tame our bodies, the body's bad. If we just tame it, everything else will work out. But Jesus tells us it's not what goes into the body that's sinful. It's what comes out of the heart. It's the spirit has to drive things. And the body is a good thing. Well... What does this lead towards? If we get a right understanding of what creation is, and if we understand creation is a good thing that's been harnessed by sin, and it's been plagued by sin, well, glorification, the way that glory is talked about in Scripture, is, is what? New heavens and new earth. It's not just heaven and, and far well beyond. It's a new earth that's redeemed. And in Second Peter, Peter says this, what is this new heavens and new earth? But according to Christ's promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And here in this verse in Second Peter 3.13, the righteousness, where righteousness dwells is righteousness functions as a cipher um, for Jesus. We wait for a new heavens and a new earth that is coming in which Christ dwells. And God will come in Christ and redeem his creation. A really interesting passage is Second Kings 6. Um, 15 verses, or 2 Kings 6 verses 15 um, through 19. I just want to read it quickly because when we think of heaven, even the way some of our hymns are constructed, um, 
you know, I'll fly away, O glory, I'll fly away, O Lord. And it's this idea that heaven is way, way beyond us. And what, uh, and it's, it's bad when you have Dr. Davis sitting right in front of you. So if I get this wrong, I really get this wrong. Um, but in, in 2 Kings 6, um, verses 15, you have Elisha and his servant are, they're encamped. And the Syrians, they're, they're, there's this battle. And when the servant of the, of the man of God, the man, Elisha, Elisha, rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And here's the servant thinking, Who is he talking about here? It's just us. And... Uh, he goes on, then Elisha, Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened his eyes of the young man, and the young man saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. We struck them with blindness. See how the interplay of uh, the Lord opens the servant's eyes, and then the Syrians are blinded. But the point here is that God peels back the sky and shows these, shows what heaven looks like here, the angels of the Lord. We think heaven's way up there. Heaven's just unseen and it's close and it's present with us. If we think that heaven is far away, we also think that God is far away. And that's important for us because if, God, if we think God's far away and distant from us, we're going to live that way. But if heaven is close and if heaven at the end of time will come and just renew everything, heaven's not coming down and just to land on top, like, on top of the earth. Heaven's already here. We can't see it. And, the, and God peels back the sky here and shows these chariots and these horses. And it's such a good reminder to know that God is with us truly. And that is such an encouraging fact. Um, and we also can compare that with Revelation 4.1. Just as God opened the eyes of Elisha's servant, think about what God does with John in Revelation. After this, I, John, looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what's... What must take place after this? This idea, I must show you. John's vision is one in which God, the, uh, through the, uh, by the help of the angel, will show. It's this idea that we, are, we can't see what heaven is or where it is. But with John and with Elisha's servant, there's this idea that God has to show us what heaven is. And that it's not far, but it is close it's not in the clouds it's not far away and that's important for us because as i've already said we think heaven is far away we think god is far away and if god is far away we get to act as we want and it's also comforting if god is truly close to us if the kingdom of heaven is at hand we have got such a confidence and boldness and courage to go with god and to obey god well, it's not only what heaven is and what glory might look like and what glory will look like. We're asking the question, the doctrine of glorification asks the question, who is coming? The doctrine of glorification is just not some abstract, dry, arid theory. It tells us who is coming back. If the Father has called us to him, he's not going to give up at the end, but will send his son 
John Murray again says this, the hope of the believer is centered in the coming of the Savior again the second time. That is our hope. And if you are fans of Tolkien and you like Lord of the Rings, Aragorn is this picture of Jesus Christ. He is the coming king. And throughout um, the books, you have this amazing kind of disclosure of who Aragorn actually is. He starts off lowly, he's a servant, but then towards the end, he becomes this fantastic leader that defeats evil. And at one place, has anyone read, read Lord of the Wings? Or am I just telling you, yes, good, there's a hand there, I see it. Um, had my Baptist moment there, I see that hand. Um, well, as Eowyn and Faramir are injured after the battle of uh, Pelennor Fields, they are being, um, they're being looked after. And Aragorn comes, and with his sage advice and his wisdom and his understanding of herbs, not herbs, as of herbs, with his majestic presence, as Tolkien says, um, he heals them. And there's this amazing, almost biblical uh, over... Um, Overture here where you hear this older woman, wiser woman, who sees this and in the background says, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer and so shall a king be known. The hands of the, the, hands of the king are the hands of a healer and so shall the king be known. Our king in many ways is pictorialized by Aragorn. He's not just this amazing king that defeats evil, but he's also a healer. And whenever we see Jesus Christ come, he will come in glory. He will come with chariots. It will be awesome in the true sense. It will blow us away, but we will see Jesus. And in his hands will be scars, and he will take us. And that's an amazing thought, that this glorious king who commands legions of angels is still Jesus who has a Middle Eastern body but glorified. I want to think that he also has a beard. But he is a a God, a savior that has healing in his hands. And we will see those in his wrists. We will see it in his brow still. And that's important for us. Titus tells us we are waiting for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, Jesus Christ. It's Jesus that's coming. We're not going to Jesus. Everything about our salvation, this has been maybe a good way to kind of sum up the Ordo Salutis. Everything begins at the initiative of God, and everything will end that way too. Jesus comes in the same way that God sent out that wonderful call of love to us. It ends with the Father sending the Son back to get us. It will only take place at God's timing. And that's another thing that's kind of a pet peeve for me. When you think about eschatology, we get so bogged down in the mechanics of what's actually going to happen. And we forget about it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not revelation, it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. He is the one that's coming. Well, it's good to end on revelation. And Derek, and this is the one place where I can actually dovetail with Derek, Dr. Thomas. If you turn to the very last page... um, we will see, actually, um, it's, the only connection is the book of Revelation. I'm not even using the verses that uh, Dr. Thomas has used, so dismiss that. And at the very last, we see in Revelation the penultimate verse of all of Holy Scripture. Revelation 22:20. 20. He who testifies to these things says, Surely 
I am coming soon. I, Jesus, am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. What we get from this is whenever a Christian can say, Amen, come Lord Jesus, that's a Christian that's focused on who Jesus is. That should be the heartbeat of every Christian. Amen, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. The way that transmits and um, the way it presents and displays itself in the Christian life is attested to by Paul in his great chapter in 1 Corinthians 15. Now that you have this great hope, now that your eyes are fixed on Jesus, therefore, my beloved brothers, you can be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. If you're a Christian and you're begging Jesus to come, that ought to be the heartbeat of every one of us. Please, Jesus, come. We don't want the world to get better. We want Jesus to come. We don't want our situation to get better. We want Jesus to come. We don't want to to make more money. We don't want our kids to go to the best schools. We want Jesus to come. And if that is your heartbeat, it's going to show up in steadfast, immovable, abounding ways in Jesus Christ. We have that hope. And all hope is, is faith telescoped into the future. If we believe that Jesus is the one that is coming, then we believe and our faith tells us that Jesus is the one that will make all things right. And that will transform the way that we live. It gives us hope. And just kind of circle back to where we began. Communism, Marxism, even capitalism can't be our hope. It has to be Jesus. If we put our hope in anything else, it's going to be lifeless and limp. Our only hope is that Jesus is coming back for each one of us. And he's going to take us to our loved ones. He is going to take away every tear. Actually, this is where I should actually follow up with Dr. Thomas because he's got this great um, application here to verse verse 4 of chapter 21. Here it says, Christ will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. When Jesus comes, he takes care of everything. All the pain, all the suffering, all the hardships that we have endured. But it's Jesus that does that. It's Jesus that can only give this kind of respite and healing. Let me close in prayer. Heavenly Father, um, we stand amazed at your great, broad, and glorious plan of redemption. How from eternity you had set your heart on us, how you have called us, um, how you've justified and redeemed us, but also we await the final act of redemption, which is glorification. When our bodies and souls joined together, we'll be brought into your presence and we'll be led there by the hand of Jesus Christ, our Savior, whose hands was pierced, his side pierced and his brow with a thorn of crowns will come with a crown of glory and Lord we we praise you for him who endured so much so that we could be with you where all our tears could be wiped away where all mourning can be done away with and fade where we will be healed and restored where we will be with our loved ones and we will enjoy the true blessings of what creation was meant to be and what we were meant to be so Father we praise you you love us eternally immensely and and that love we can't even fathom but i pray that tonight each one of us might leave from here 
with a firmer, deeper sense of what you have accomplished and what you are going to accomplish for us. So set our hearts and our affections on you and nothing or no one else. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.